Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, everybody out there in podcast land. You are in tune to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza. And I am David. And I'm really excited. I know I say I'm excited all the time because I am, those that know me. But I'm really excited about our guest today because there are two schools of thought that usually go out there with regards to history. And in different different depending on what you're talking about for the subject, some people believe there's one school that's, oh, it happened in the past, don't worry about it, this is a brand new day. And the other school of thought is those that don't know the history are doomed to repeat it. And so I think you'll form your own opinion by the end of this podcast because we are speaking with a gentleman who has lineage uh, back to the 1800s. And before that, he actually has scrapbooks of newspaper articles in the day uh, of his family. We're going to talk about Tobacco Trust in Trump, which is his book, How America's Forgotten War Created Big Government. And are there any similarities? Are there parallels to what happened in the past? I'm not sure, but I think we'll find out in this hour. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome Jim Rumford to the podcast. Welcome, Jim. Well, thank you, Dave. I uh, appreciate being here. Maybe we can put a little uh, emphasis on history. Yes, that's, yes. That's happened in the past. Yes, well, my, yes. Our story about the uh, tobacco, basically about the tobacco trust. And back in the early 1880s, you had the steel mill trust, the banking trust, the railroad trust, the oil trust. And this was a method for the rich guys who owned, what they did is they established these trusts by buying out their competition and through vertical integration captured a monopoly. And so the monopolies were very strong between 1880 and um, 1900, extremely strong. There's 440 of them. Um, but the big story we're talking about is the tobacco trust. And the tobacco trust was put together by James Duke, better known as Buck Duke. And Buck Duke uh, owned the American Tobacco Trust. His father was a Civil War soldier for the Confederacy, came back from, the, from a prisoner war camp. He was in the Confederate Navy. Came back from the Civil War camp uh, in prison and found to his surprise he had five barns full of tobacco. So they started making, instead of growing tobacco, they started making tobacco products because most all the barns were, were burned, down, burned down by the, by the uh, northern troops. So they started up in a little chicken coop, and that's where their first manufacturing of tobacco products, chewing tobacco, smoking tobacco, snuffing tobacco, stuff like that. So then as things go along, uh, Buck Duke, his son, of course, grows up, is a big part of the business with his brother. Then they um, they started buying out their competition, which made it vertical integration. So uh, they controlled a monopoly. And they, in 1880, they established the American Tobacco Trust, which meant they owned most all tobacco products and all outlets. So now prior to this, <clears throat> you would have um, farmers growing tobacco, and uh, the different tobacco companies would go out and bid the price of tobacco to buy the tobacco, what they wanted to make the final products in. Uh, smoking tobacco was a big thing in, in those days. Um, but also, as they um, um, had all these buyers out there bidding the price of tobacco, the farmers were making pretty good money. They're making $0.05, cents, $0.10, cents, 
even as high as 20 cents a pound, which was a lot of money in those days. They became very prosperous. So now, in 1890, Buck Duke controlled a monopoly. Well, now he's now the only buyer, so now he's in a monopoly. So he would then start buying tobacco from the farmers. And between 1890 and 1900, the price of tobacco went from 5, 10, 20 cents a pound down to 1 to 2 cents a pound. And the tobacco farmers couldn't uh, make a living. So they decided to go and make an uprising. So they got the judges, the deputies, the sheriffs, the farmers, the merchants, the doctors, the attorneys, and they put together uh, 10,000 night riders. Now, in the tobacco war between 1902 and 1908, there were 650,000 people in this uprising. It's the biggest uprising since the Civil War, and nothing like this has happened uh, up until the Civil Rights Movement of the 60s. So now that the, uh, the night riders would take through the countryside, finding farmers that were selling to the trust, they would bring them out of their house at midnight, they'd ride up with torches and on their horses, pull the farmer out, horsewhipping in front of his family, then go back and either ride their horses through the tobacco crops or they would burn down the tobacco barns. So I had a great-grandfather, his name was George Washington Kinney, who was a tobacco buyer selling to the trust. The other great-grandfather was George Washington Shett, who was a night rider. One night they pulled up in front of the Kinney house, brought Mr. Kinney out, horsewhipping severely, and burned down all of our tobacco barns. And then uh, Mr. Jett's daughter and Mr. Kinney's son later on married in life. And that's how I get into it with my grandparents and great-grandparents. So now along comes Teddy Roosevelt. Now, Teddy Roosevelt was known as a test buster. And so he started uh, doing his political event. And then along about up to 19, or, yeah, 1911, I think it was, the Supreme Court brings in uh, John D. Rockefeller, and he has the oil monopoly, the oil trust. And they bust up Mr. Uh, Rockefeller. They busted up his company into about six or seven independent oil companies and uh, from one. Now, Mr. Rockefeller made far more money with six or seven companies, which he still had ownership in, than he ever would have made by, uh, by having a, a monopoly. Mm-hmm. That was in the morning of, in December of 1911. That afternoon, they bring in James Duke, or better known as Buck Duke. They break his company up into six or seven or eight cigarette companies. And again, uh, they, he made more money with that company broken up than he ever would have made by himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what they did is uh, they spurred entrepreneurship and capitalism. Now, there's a statue in the books called the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890 where it's illegal to have monopolies. And uh, so this is, this is the job to break up all the monopolies, and they did, did a very good job of it. So then comes along the guys with the money, the Rockefellers, the Dukes, uh, the Chase, you know, uh, Vanderbilts. They say, now how are we going to protect our money? So they get on a train about midnight in the winter of, I think it was 1912, 1911, and they head down to Jekyll Island. Now, you probably have heard that. Some people have read the book about Jekyll Island. And these gentlemen sat there for a couple of years, 
and they figured out a way to protect their assets, so they created the Federal Reserve Bank, which is a private organization, and the IRS. And so that's how that got started. Mm. So then we fast forward to uh, through the ears of the um, government stepping in to help give support for tobacco farmers, and tobacco became a prosperous enterprise for farmers up until, you know, through the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Then uh, we come up to today. Now, today, the reason Trump's in there on the book is you have, I think, uh, Mr. Trump's going to be the uh, trust buster again. But now they don't call them trust today. They call them monopolies. The monopolies would be Google, Facebook, those types of guys. And uh, one of the associates with Facebook is against Zuckerberg saying that Facebook should be broken up. So now the Justice of, Department of Justice is uh, doing investigations on the monopolies. And I mm-hmm. think you'll see in this administration, and when he gets elected next, uh, next term, I think you'll see a lot of the monopolies get broken up again. And what this will do, this will expand entrepreneurship and capitalism again, and people will make a lot of money. The idea of America is to create millionaires and billionaires. That's we are a capitalist country, and that's the way it should be. And then you raise as you as your economy goes up, you raise all boats. So that's kind of a brief outline of the book. Uh, you can find the book on uh, the TobaccoWars.com, and uh, it's very interesting reading. There's uh, about 12 chapters. It's a quick read, but it gives that type of history. And then at the end of each chapter, there's uh, all the documentation where you can find the documentation about this uh, particular part of uh, history. Awesome. Sound good? Awesome. It sounds phenomenal. I mean, I have so many questions just from that introduction. And thanks for you, thanks for outlining that, Jim. Um, yes, sir. I'm trying to think of where I want to go with it. I think the first thing, let's stay with the farmers. So you were talking about um, how the farmers were benefiting and then they weren't um, in the 1800s. So I wanted to get your take on the farmers in, and if you could take your Wi-Fi off, uh, Jim and David, I think I'm getting an echo. Oh, I, am I okay? Yeah, you can, you sound better now. Okay. Okay. So my question to you, my first question is, I want to get your take on farmers in 2019 because uh, first it was Monsanto and then they were bought out by the Bayer company where they are they're not allowing farmers to be entrepreneurs and and flourish like you were highlighting in a perfect world so i know we're going to focus on tech companies but if trump is going to uh, break up a lot of these companies do you think he's going to start with the farming industry he should that's a good place to start he's right now they're concentrating on the tech guys but monsanto they control the seeds big time mm-hmm. Exactly. And uh, then you have the generic modified seeds out there, which is not a good thing for the country or for our, our food system, but we've got it. Uh, they've also, you know, their company is very good about cre- creating, selling bad stuff, such as Roundup has now uh, killed a lot of people, and there's a lawsuit that's been settled, and they're going to pay out millions and millions of dollars for people that's been sick. So mm-hmm. that's so that's the... Uh, Farming community needs to be entrepreneurial and needs to be a capitalist, and they need to thrive on their own, not being controlled by, by Monsanto. And they do control them. 
you can't even you can't even make you cannot make your own seeds to, to sow. Exactly. So it's exactly. a bad situation. So out there in Colorado, I'm not sure what the farming community is out there, but you get the bread belt. You got farmers, you know, growing corn, soybeans, uh, the crop. It's the breadbasket of the world, and they, uh, we are, we know how to do this as a country. So right. yeah, that's another monopoly. So the, mon- the monopolies are all, are, as the Supreme Court, the monopolies are against entrepreneurship and capitalism. They want to control everything. Mm-hmm. And think so. I was going to ask real quick, Jim. When you were talking, you mentioned uh, like I think James Duke or and or Bo Duke, the Duke family. Is that the same Dukes from the Duke University? It's interesting how Duke University came about. One day, Buck Duke went that he was supporting the Trinity College in North Carolina. So one day he goes down to the the board meeting. He says, you know, I've been giving you guys an awful lot of money, and I want you to change the name of the university, the college from Trinity College to Duke University. That's how that came mm-hmm. out, yes. Okay. So he was a pretty much an egomaniac. Uh, yeah. He wanted things his way. And again, they held a, <clears throat> excuse me, they held a uh, monopoly on tobacco in America, Europe, Asia, and they made billions of dollars. When he died in 1925, his daughter, Doris Duke, I'm sure you've heard of Doris yeah. Duke, yeah. she inherited $2.9 billion as a B. Yeah. And then when she died in 1993, she had $11 billion. I think a lot of that went to Duke University. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a colorful story about the family. Uh, they You've got to take your hat off to them. They were very creative and they made a lot of money. Yeah, Absolutely. Have you seen the the documentary, The Men Who Built America, Jim? I have. It's very interesting. Yeah. Okay, so since you have, I'm so happy you have. So I want to spend a lot of time there. Uh, But before I do, one thing that you highlighted at the intro was the Knight Riders. And and it was in such detail. And I think historically, they're not talked about, or when they are talked about, it's seen from a uh, a racial standpoint. And so it's not covered where... It seems that uh, depending on who you are, you're getting a portion or a skewed view of history. And if everyone had the similar uh, history, then I think we would find that there's more common ground so that these monopolies may not rise up. Well, the Knight Riders that was racially uh, thought of, this was, this was not racial at all. It was white mm-hmm. farmers and black farmers riding with the Knight Riders to stop the uh, tobacco buyers from selling to the trust. So mm-hmm. there's, there was no, no association with the Knight Riders. What they did is they went to the KKK in Indianapolis, Indiana. They said, teach us how to be guerrillas, fighters. This is not your fight. So they kind of instructed them on how to become guerrilla fighters, and they did. But the KKK was never involved in this movement. Mm. Yeah, but the the similarities uh, that I draw from it in in watching the men who built America were economic reasons, right? So if mm-hmm. uh, if we go from Civil War, and one parallel that I saw or that I see is from after the Civil War to the 1890s, like you said before 1902 when the market crashed again, that uh, when everyone's doing well, then you know there's not that much upheaval. But when you have uh, uh, economic 
recession, like in the 1870s or early 1890s, there are a lot of people that are out of work and they want to point the finger at someone that, you know, they need to pay while I'm not, you know, living the life that I used to live. And so, you know, sometimes it gets taken to the extreme where the night Riders exist. That's correct. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. But you take uh, back, you have to take the mining, the mining trust, the steel mill, the uh, railroad trust, the Pinkerton guy moved in on those guys with authority from the local sheriff or maybe from the feds. You know, if the guys wouldn't go back to work for starvation wages, they shoot them. They, they would shoot two or 300 guys at a time to put the rest of them back to work. So that was very violent. And that was out west and also uh, through New York, Pennsylvania, and Chicago with the railroad guys. So uh, it got pretty violent. Absolutely. And I'm also thinking about another parallel that you were saying when the trusts were created, because of the spirit of entrepreneurship, there may be, uh, I'll use the Rockefeller for this example, where he's in the railroads, and then the people that work for him are like, okay, well, maybe we can start a railroad, and then you have a bubble. And so from since then to current times, we have these bubbles that happen economically when the bubbles burst the people with the most money wind up acquiring these companies. So isn't that mm-hmm. when the trusts were created when a Rockefeller or a Carnegie and these guys, uh, when the economy goes down and no one has cash, they have the cash. So that's when they acquire the company. What's your take on well, that? They, they did that also, but basically as Rockefeller in the uh, men who built America in that, in that uh, movie, you're talking uh, in the Supreme court, John D Rockefeller says, you know, I spent my entire life building this oil company. Uh, I started from scratch when nobody was out there, nothing was going on, and I created this great empire, and which he did. So you've got to take your hat off to doing that. But then the stance on the Supreme Court was, you build an empire, but you have created a monopoly. And a monopoly stifles entrepreneurship and capitalism. And that's why we're going to break you up. And they did. And again, he made far more money with six or seven, eight oil companies out there because he had ownership in them than he would have ever made by himself. Mm. So it it's, runs both sides of the tracks. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and they were talking about, uh, I mean, thanks for including uh, Buck Duke and what happened to him in 1911. And, and in that documentary, they were showing how there was a monopoly in the automobile industry. And because of the breakups in 1911, that allowed uh, Henry Ford to start the Ford Motor Company or continue building it instead of getting sued for uh, for for patent infringement. And so well, what what he did, remember the, he was in a car race with someone? Yeah. Proving yeah. that uh, I think the car race is what broke up the monopoly or the uh, patents on making automobiles because you had a group of guys, I think they were in uh, uh, Detroit, who said, for you to make an automobile, you've got to come through us. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's a different type of monopoly where they controlled the automobile business. And you weren't going to build a car unless we approved or you paid us or however that story went. And so when he won that auto race, and then went, I guess he went back to the Supreme Court, and they ruled against that particular monopoly or that, that group of guys. And that's when Ford, Henry Ford, could then pursue his dream of building cars for the common man. Absolutely. And I, I'm going to go to the present, but one other thing I want to talk about historically, that's why I was really excited about speaking with you, because you actually have scrapbook, you know, newspaper articles of the day, and I'm sure looking over them, over them that there are a lot of similarities that exist today. 
right? And so um, one thing that I remember seeing in the Men Who Build America, again, was uh, in the, I believe it was the 1890 recession or 1892 recession that the government was bankrupt or they didn't have money, they didn't have the funds. So they actually went to J.P. Morgan and J.P. Morgan was able to lend them money and so he was actually unscathed like the Rockefellers or the Carnegies or even the Dukes because of his relationship with government. Do you think that was the beginning of the uh, relationships with big business and government? It probably was, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not that familiar with that particular part, but um, uh, those guys had the money, and they did loan money to the uh, uh, the government. And then when they set up the Fed, uh, that was a source of income needed back to the to the government or back to the banks. When there was a run on the, on the banks or something happened, they could produce the money. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And and it's been changed. Like you said, a lot has changed uh, where the monopolies were able to kind of have free reign. And it was really interesting watching how uh, there was a gentleman by the name of William Jennings Bryant, who was a Democrat and prohibitionist in 1896. He's like, we need to break up the, 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 the monopolies and all. And that and the the. The popular, I mean, the popular people, I mean, not the popular people, but the owners of the large companies were like, we can't have that. So we're going we're gonna to put our money behind William McKinley, and he's going to answer, he's going to fulfill our needs. And so William McKinley was able to be uh, William Jennings Bryant. And I'm bringing it up because William Jennings Bryant sounds a lot like Elizabeth Warren and those from the left today of, we need mm-hmm. to tax the rich. And... Uh, what happened was with McKinley, uh, when you said Teddy Roosevelt, when McKinley ran the second time, Roosevelt felt the same way as William Jennings Bryant. And they're like, well, Roosevelt, he's wealthy. He knows what we're about, and he's a threat to us, so let's just make him a vice president. It was only after the assassination of William McKinley that Teddy Roosevelt became president. So mm-hmm. do you see any similarities with that environment, with today's environment? Well, I think you got – I think Trump's out there because he believes in the American people. And I think he believes that entrepreneurship and capitalism is the only way to go, not socialism. Socialism will, uh, you know, puts people down, keeps folks down. Where only the elite then thrive in, in, in a political environments. So I think that, I think the reason Trump's in there is my belief is, is Trump was probably very much like uh, Teddy Roosevelt at the time. And I think his administration is going to work with the Department of Justice and FBI to break up the monopolies. Now, now the monopolies have made a lot of guys a lot of money. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I believe in that type of organization. But when you have a strong monopolies like we have with these guys, if you break them up, you're going to expand that marketplace because guys are coming in with tremendous ideals and making things happen uh, Look at our technology today. It's, bad. it's fabulous on what mm-hmm. we've developed. And it'll just keep going. So you just need to keep those people that are, are uh, entrepreneurs, capitalism, capitalists in the marketplace to expand our economy overall. Now, from a capitalist mindset, do you think this is part of the business cycle? And it makes me think of, of Microsoft, right? They were a, a scrappy upstart. And then the next thing you know, anytime you bought a computer, it was, had all the Microsoft bloatware, and, <laughs> and they were ultimately broken up. 
but you have the same with these tech companies where they're, you know, famously talked about getting started in these garages. And then, you know, nobody kind of, I remember in business meetings when Facebook went public and everyone kind of laughed at them, the internet company. And now since they're publicly traded, it's like, no, we need to break them up. So do you think um, that you're supposed to start in your garage and then you're too big to fail and then the government's supposed to step in to break you up? Well, if you get to the, if you get like in the Facebook and Google where they lean left and they're dictating some of their beliefs to the population of being left and not being right, uh, that's not right either. So they're taking a political stand on how they feel, which is influencing the public and sometimes could influence the, ele- the elections. Yeah, so that's yeah. not right either. So you've got to watch out. They get so big and strong that they would then control uh, our political environment then that's bad. Uh, the, the, the people who, the Google of, the, of the yesterday was the telegraph companies. And the telegraph companies were the ones that could sway the public belief because the telegraph companies delivered all the news to all the newspapers that was published throughout the whole country. And so they had a way to move the thought process either to the left or to the right. So you get these guys that get politically correct in their eyes, uh, which can create havoc in the political system mm-hmm. and it makes me think I'm here in Atlanta and in the business community just a brief history was uh, Roy Barnes was the governor and he was the governor and he was expected to win in the landslide for his second term and he wound up he wound up losing to Sonny Purdue and the business community had all their money behind Roy Barnes but then when he mm-hmm. lost they're like well we're not going to run for the hills we're going to see how we can have relationships with with Sonny Perdue, which makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. And so my question is, uh, in the last administration, there was a lot of eyes raised because Eric Schmidt, who was the head of Google, had a strong relationship with the Obama administration. And so to what extent, we don't know. But we know that uh, that relationship allowed Google to grow to to the size that they are. And I wanted to get your take on that. Well, they did that. I'm not quite sure about your governor. Uh, Purdue took over. I heard good things about Purdue. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have to, for Google to really have the anchor they have in the world, uh, they also use their political influence to sway the public to the left. Mm-hmm. And I think they're more left-leaning than, than to the right. So... Again, these companies have done a fab- fabulous job. But again, they get so big and they control so much. The idea of the Supreme Court ruling of the uh, Antitrust Act was that no one group should have control of the country. Mm-hmm. And I, I see a lot of the parallels, and that, that's where I think it may change. So that, that's why I was really excited about getting your take, because, and that's why I brought up Eric Smith, because... Uh, Tim Cook, who's the head of Apple, he had he was behind the Clinton campaign, but obviously she lost. And he has a, a great relationship with our current president. And he may not be affected by the tariffs that are that are about to happen or that are ongoing. And I think some of it is in because he has the president's ear. He's showing that you know Apple is an American company. And if you and if you give the terror, if we're impacted by the terrorists, we're going to have to raise our prices, and then 
Samsung is a competitor of ours, but they're not American. So right. when you're breaking up these monopolies in the states, it's one thing, but when we're talking about competing globally, it's something else. So well, now, when, on that. once you once you go globally, like you're talking about, that's a whole new set of rules that the Sherman Antitrust Act does not uh, operate under. Right. So now you've got a whole different set of rules. And so to change, to make this uh, sort of a level playing field, you're going to have to do something with the foreign countries, companies as well as ours. But you don't want to have Apple at a disadvantage over Samsung. Exactly. So it's a balancing act, and a lot of politicians <laughs> have to make some decisions, and these decisions are not going to be easy to make. Right. And the purpose of my book was to say, this is what happened back then. Mm-hmm. And how does this compare to what's happening today? And there's a lot of off-takes on it. That's not in my book. But uh, we're in very, very precarious times. And we're, in our, and our technology is expanding so rapidly, so quickly, that mm-hmm. uh, it's something else. Look, what, look what's going on with China and America with the, uh, the, the trade wars. Mm-hmm. You know, who's going to win there? Uh, it's in, and China's losing a lot. A lot of companies coming back to America, going to Vietnam, going to other countries to manufacture. So China's losing out on uh, on the grip that they had on the economy. That's being less and less. Mm-hmm. But China wanted to become the uh, the ruling power of the world economically, and because President Trump stepped in, that's not working out that well for them. Right. And, and I think that's where he was talking about cleaning up the swamp. And it, it's, it's interesting to have this conversation because as a, as a small business, you have to think of how, how can I make profits, right? And so that's what started the whole outsourcing, right? Uh, 20 years ago, that was the thing to do. I mean, people lost their jobs, but we were able to get cheaper products like at Walmart and such. And so now, you know, it's just interesting of – uh, the, oh, the other side is a lot of people from China and other countries came over here to our universities to learn, and then they took that knowledge back home. So they're, they're now competitors, and I think that's where we have that environment we have today. Well, if you go back to H.W. Bush, Clinton, George W. Bush, and Obama, under those administrations, you had 70,000 manufacturing plants leave or close up in America and went to Southeast Asia or other parts of the world. Mm-hmm. That took millions of jobs, middle-class jobs, out of, out of the event. Now, what mm-hmm. Trump has done is he brought many of those manufacturing jobs back, as we've seen, and so you're build, rebuilding the middle class, which should never have been decimated to begin with, but they were. Mm-hmm. So with that loss of industry, and I saw, and I, I'd been at auctions and paper mills, steel mills, where they would come in, auction the place off, they would box up the uh, equipment, whatever it was, a paper-making machine, a mill stand, uh, any of those types of units, they ship them to uh, Asia or to, uh, you know, Vietnam, China. And I saw that going as they closed down paper mill after paper mill, steel mill after steel mill, uh, and that whole thing went away. And so the, the people from overseas were buying this equipment for, you know, pennies on the dollar, take them home, and then competing with us in America. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's interesting because you're in Ohio. So, I mean, 
it was a thriving area, which is now known as, well, I don't, it's, some people would call it the Rust Belt. So how are they mm-hmm. responding to, can you bring our jobs back versus, okay, America is known for its ingenuity and creativity. So do you see where the local community is, you know, we want the manufacturing jobs back, but we've also have something else instead of putting all of our eggs in one basket. Well, what they're doing now, what's happening now is, if you, you know, the Detroit was a disaster after 50 years of democratic rule. Down the tubes it went, drugs went sky high, the neighborhoods were drug infested, uh, alcoholism was out of sight. So with this event that's been going on, Michigan is booming. Uh, the city of Detroit is is mending. Uh, a lot of the old neighborhoods that were really slums being bulldozed down, they're building new condominiums, especially around the downtown Detroit area. They're refurbishing the buildings, the, the office buildings downtown Detroit. So Detroit's making a big comeback. But then Michigan is making a super comeback also. I do, I'm, I'm in Michigan quite a bit, and mm-hmm. I see this, uh, this renaissance going on. And so you have an attitude up there, very positive, uh, they see what Trump has done for them. Uh, you've, you're bringing back some of the manufacturing, like Chrysler brought back plants from Mexico, so did Ford. Uh, and they're building uh, a great event. Now, downtown Detroit is the old train station, 34 stories high, historic. It's sat in ruins for years. The Ford Motor Company buys that, and they're going to turn that into uh, self-driving cars, uh, electric cars and technology. So that whole 34-story building is going to be uh, pointed towards uh, technology. And so they're doing their part to bring this thing up. But Michigan as a whole is doing very well. And you have some great people up there doing it. Now Ohio is the same. Uh, Indiana, Illinois, Kentucky. Uh, and this part, this part of the country I'm in is uh, expanding very nicely. People are making money. The uh, automobile guys get bonuses uh, on production, which has been very, very good. I think we're going to have a little downturn in the car business for a while, but they got plenty of cars they built. But no, it's a positive event. That's what's going on. It's what I see out there every day. Yeah, absolutely. The the owner or the CEO of, of Ford has has he's made the rounds, and he's, there's this huge initiative mm-hmm. to have the electric cars and such. And so uh, my question to you for that is, since we're talking about technology, is there's one school of thought that if we have self-driving cars, then that would get rid of the insurance industry because there's, you no longer need insurance because the cars can drive themselves. Uh, so that industry would go away. A lot of people lose their jobs. What impact do you think technology has with automation where the humans are taken out of the equation? Well, you're not going to kick the humans out. They're going to be there. If you look at the cars, the people that are in jeopardy is, could be the insurance companies. I doubt it. Uh, it also could be the body shops. The body shops fix all these wrecked cars. And if you get self-driving cars and you don't have those accidents anymore, those people would be in jeopardy. Uh, so a lot of people would be in jeopardy, but not necessarily. If you go back when they broke up AT&T back years ago, mm-hmm. there was 400,000 long-distance operators. And they said, if you break up AT&T, 
you're going to let off 400,000 long-distance operators, which will be a disaster to that industry. Well, they broke them up. Those long-distance operators went by the wayside. New technology came in. So the replacement for four, those 400,000 jobs turned into new jobs of three to four million jobs. So mm-hmm. technology can always create new opportunities. And if you think these robots are going to run the factories, you've got to have guys behind it to take care of the robots, to service them, and to uh, make things you know, go, go, go well. So I don't mm-hmm. think that the, the population is going to uh, lose jobs because of automation. You're going to lose that particular job doing that particular task, but not the whole kit and caboodle because you're still going to need people to oversee manufacturing to uh, make sure things run right. So I think I think that's kind of overblown. Do you think also with regards to education, there was the traditional go to go to school, graduate from high school, go to college, and maybe you know grad school, professional school, and then you're done. Uh, what you're outlining is lifelong learning because uh, the economy or the industry may change in your area, and you either have to move or adapt. Well, our educational system, one of the big things that happened to education is they quit teaching history in the uh, elementary schools and high schools. They need to bring back the history so people can see what happened in the past so that they can take a look at what's going on in the future. Now, a lot mm-hmm. of kids say, God, history's boring as boring as can be. Uh, if I was a history teacher, it wouldn't be very boring. But uh, uh, the, the technology is important in school. Um, for many years, you had the, school, the high school counselors working with the college counselors, and they were trying to get students into their university through the high schools. So a lot of the kids that went and got their degrees in worthless degrees, uh, they couldn't get a job if they had to, and that was, that was bad. Uh, some of the, the more um, lefty-type schools, one is Wright State University here in Dayton, they had 25,000 students at one time. I think this past year, it went down to 15,000. Mm. Uh, that was a little bit mis- mismanagement. Uh, Southern Illinois University of Carbondale, they went from 25,000 to 17,000 students. So I think a lot of students now are looking at trade schools, uh, computer schools, and looking mm. to get a, a, an education that can get them a job, not just give them a degree. Hmm. Hmm. Because that's, that's actually the last bubble that exists. I mean, the cost of education continues to rise. And you're saying people are, are saddled with all this uh, student debt, and they, don't e- they can't even get a job for what they study then. Because what they study that, there's no existing jobs out there. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, there's no existing jobs for that where um, kids can go, you know, you need welders. You need electricians. You need computer people. You need uh, a whole host of things. If you go into into the steel mills today, um, you still have an aging population in the workforce there. Uh, the young kids don't want to do that. That's hard work. But those those steel jobs are going. The steel the steel business is going to expand in America, or is expanding in America now, and we need more technicians and more people to work in, in the mills. So. Uh, as you get rid of these non-existent degrees that don't, don't make any difference and concentrate on the, the degrees 
that help build the country, then you've got something. Mm-hmm. I have an older question with regards to the rail system. And when we had the downturn in the last decade here in, here in, in Atlanta, it was, you know, mar- families were broken up and what have you if the husband found a job in, like you said, in Michigan and the wife couldn't leave, you know, she still had her job here or she had a job in Tennessee and they couldn't move. And I wanted to get your take on rail systems where in the Northeast you can live in D- – I have friends that live in D.C. and they work in New York. And so they can kind of get work done while, while they're on the train and kind of go back and forth. Do you think – and uh, – what's his name? Um, oh, man, I just forgot his name right now. Uh, he, they're doing these rail systems in Florida. And so they're connecting Miami to Tampa to – to have the synergies amongst those city in those cities, so you don't necessarily have to live there. Uh, Branson, Richard Branson, he's funding a lot of that. Do you see a, a, a resurgence of using rail systems to connect the country? Well, I do. If you get, if you get the, the rail system to be fast enough that you can move move around quickly, that would take a lot of. Uh, if Branson does his job, uh, that would slow down the airlines, but there's still going to be a lot of people traveling. But, yeah, that would be nice to be get on a train. I'd love to get on a train here in Dayton and go to, to uh, Detroit. And and then get to Detroit, you can rent a car and do your thing and come back the same day. Uh, inexpensive rail system would be very, very attractive, and they have it in Japan and, and some of it over in, in Europe. But, yeah, mm-hmm. it's a good yeah. idea. Yeah, yeah doesn't what, China have, like, a, chain, a train that's going, like, 200 miles an hour or something like that? I think they do. I was in Russia here some years ago, and, their their train system, their their subway system is absolutely fabulous, clean, neat, organized, and uh, they move pretty quick. So uh, Russia's been on that for many, many, many years. And I think Stalin's the guy that put the uh, subway system together back years ago. Mm. And they're clean. They got lots of art down there as you walk through the system. Uh, lots of paintings, lots of uh, stuff that came from the revolution, and they still sell that that uh, that attire of uh, Lenin doing his thing back in the day after, the, after they got rid of the czar. And they killed the, the czar's family back in 1917, and then you had uh, you had socialism, which they killed what in the last century I think socialism and Nazism all that killed about 100 million people. So you don't want to, you don't want to go that way. And the reason why I bring it up is uh, I'm thinking of, like you're saying, uh, it, it could be just human nature of survival of the fittest. And if I'm, my basic needs aren't met, there may be another rise of, like, night Riders. I mean, you hear that in 2019, there's online sentiment of that. And if and you kind of look back at, well, who are these people that would subscribe to that? And it could be in their area, their their basic needs aren't being met and they have no way to go to maybe a major city because they're rural, and these rail systems may potentially connect these disconnected communities so you don't have another night Riders from a historical standpoint. Well, if you take a lot of rural areas, you take eastern Kentucky and West Virginia, southern Ohio, Pennsylvania, you know, those are all very rural areas, and you, you wouldn't have the population there to support a rail system. Um, so you're still going to, have to use the conventional, the good old automobile, which sure beats a horseback and a buckboard. <laughs> but uh, 
<laughs> those are those are pretty slow. But uh, rail connections between the major cities, uh, that'd be pretty good. But then you have to have enough people that's going to ride those to pay for it. And so the big risk is, and and they they had a rail system between Cincinnati and Detroit back in the teens of last century, and uh, I think it was the urban 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 transit. I think that's what it was called. But they could not stay in business because they could not get the riders. So mm. people back in then, those days were still, even the cars were just uh, coming in the, into the world. They still couldn't get uh, enough riders to support it. Now here they've talked about a rail system for Cincinnati to Dayton to Columbus to Cleveland. Uh, and then from Cleveland to Toledo. And Toledo to Detroit. But that's billions and billions of dollars. And so mm-hmm. I think the stumbling point is you don't have the ridership to support something like that. Uh, now, and, and the other thing is the the outlay, like you said. And if I want to stay and if I want to stay in government, I want to appease the people that got me there. And if I upset everyone in my first tenure, I may not be asked back. So it's usually a good have, idea. Yeah. <laughs> it's you a good idea. A yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Because we're here here in Atlanta, we have I mean traffic is everyone says tra- traffic is a nightmare where they are, and we really believe it here. And we they just <laughs> shot down um, a rail system from the city to Gwinnett, which is a suburb, and they lost that vote because the people didn't want it out there. And I'm like, you, I don't live out there, but I'm like, you like sitting in your car. I mean, your quality of life is two hours each way to commute to come to town to work but you don't want a rail system because of, for whatever reason. So it's just interesting. Well, in Cincinnati, back in the 20s, they built a subway system there, but they never put it into use. Never, they never did run one railroad car. But if you go to Chicago and look at their rail system, it's very efficient and very effective, and they, they, those things are full. So mm-hmm. you've you got a system that's working very well in Chicago. Uh, Detroit doesn't have a subway system either. Right. New York does. So Cincinnati wasn't big enough, they felt at the time, to support that. That that subway system is still there. Kind of creepy down there. <laughs> They've done some news studies. They've done some, done some news reports from down in the subway. Uh, it could it could be put in service, but I don't think that's going to be their future. Don't mm-hmm. think it's going to happen. From a so they built a whole entire they built a whole entire subway system in Cincinnati and they never ever used it. Never used they, they never they never put they never they never bought the rail cars. Never wow. did use it. And uh but the the one nice thing about it is when you would come out of Cincinnati and head to the northern suburbs, because the gates are still there where they're gonna come out. Uh and they had that right away all the way up north towards General Electric, which is at the north end of the city. Uh, that's what, that's how they were able to put I-75 in because they had the right-of-way already. So it came right uh, down through town. So uh, the subway worked out well to produce I-75 at a big reduced cost because the, the uh, right-of-way was there, was there. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, and, you know, the, as we travel everywhere, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, uh, traffic on the interstates was pretty low, but today mm-hmm. it's high. 
Yeah. But one thing we do have, we do have a great country, and the best of our years are yet to come. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Do you think from a competitive standpoint, we're talking about rail system versus driving and such. I mean, you have the the Rockefellers who was uh, controlling the rail system, and then you had the Fords, and then you had the Goodyears with the tires, and then they formed that relationship to build our highways. So what do you think it was just to be competitive, to get all the – so Rockefeller wouldn't get all the money, and then we can kind of have this expansion across the U.S.? Because today we have a lot of those highways that are in disrepair. So, you know, like you're saying, ideally it would be great to have a railroad system, but how do we improve the existing highways as well? Well, they're going to fix the highways and the bridges. The bridges are all in bad shape. They used to mm-hmm. coat bridges, the concrete on bridges, with a with an epoxy paint. And I've noticed this year in Ohio and Michigan, they've been taking those paints off the bridges because the paint holds the moisture in the concrete, and then the, moist, then the concrete gets destroyed. And I just mm-hmm. noticed this the past, say, several months. And uh, I said, wow, someone is starting to look at these bridges correctly and highways. But uh, when you look at all the coatings that's going on these bridges that hold the moisture in, and then you come back and you see all the deteriorated concrete that has to be replaced. Uh, that was a big mistake uh, in mm-hmm. specifying those types of materials. But uh, mm-hmm. we will get the, the, the infrastructure is going to get rebuilt. I think Trump's doing a great job to get that on track. Uh, as I see up on 75, of course, they're always doing work on 75 and I-70 to yeah. expand it or to maintain it, what have you. But uh, there's a lot, a lot going on. Uh, and again, I say that our future is very bright, and the best, is, the best years are yet to come for us. Mm-hmm. Wholeheartedly and, agree. And, and remember, the American people are very, very residual, res, resi, resilient. Right. They're, uh, they're independent. They're smart. They're knowledgeable. And... Uh, and they're entrepreneurs and capitalists, and they can make things happen, and as we always have and always will. Hey, Jim, do you remember the social media site Friendster? Friendster? Friendster. No. Okay. See, most people don't. And so if I ask a younger person if they remember MySpace, a lot of them won't remember then. And a decade ago... That's when these companies had come out, and they were new, and you know, kind of people flocked to them. But then they lost their luster, and then people moved on. So at that time, people left Friendster, and then they went to MySpace, and then MySpace lost its luster, and people went to Facebook, and then when mm-hmm. Facebook was losing its luster, people went to Instagram, and so Facebook was like, and others like it said, well, it's better to just acquire these smaller companies and and bring them into ours, so that way we don't lose the platform. And so now you have a lot of these tech companies that own many different entities. And so what do you see as far as breaking up the tech companies and how they can do it? Because Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Google, they all are multi, multiple entities under their umbrella. Well, back uh, when they busted up the trust, those guys had four, five, six, maybe eight companies that they acquired through vertical integration. Well, now today you got Facebook and Google and all those guys. They have uh, vertical integration 
but they've bought up 100 or 200 or 300 companies. Mm-hmm. But if those, and then they, they create that, that's how the monopolies created. So then once they break the monopolies up and these people go back into the marketplace, then you have an expansion of the economy as you did back in the turn of the last century. And that's what builds um, a strong nation. Uh, one major company controlling, let's say Facebook had everything. You have one company that controls everything. That's a danger to our society and a danger to capitalism and entrepreneurship. So they really need to be broken up so that the, what happens is Facebook sees a guy that's got a good idea. He's making money. Things are going pretty good for him. And then it kind of trends on their it trends on their space. Well, they buy this guy up, they give him bukus of money, and he can't say no. He takes it in the leaves and retires, and then they gobble those companies up. Well, those companies should be turned loose. They can expand like the oil companies did, the tobacco companies did, the car companies. So that's, that's what creates competition. Competition is good. Mm-hmm. Competition brings great things to society. Yeah, I remember, uh, not, I think it was last year, Yelp was on 60 Minutes, and they were complaining about everyone uses the Google search engine, and all of their properties are listed, and, and so the, it actually pushes out a lot of the small businesses. And mm-hmm. I, I guess today it seems unimaginable that that search engine would be replaced, as I'm sure before the uh, breakup of the monopolies, they didn't think they'd ever be broken up. So that's encouraging. True. Very true. Well, you're a great interview guy. <laughs> you do a good job. Yeah, Thomas is always good. <laughs> I just try to stay out of his way. <laughs> well, I do want to share, we are almost at the top of the hour, and I knew the hour was going to fly by. It, it usually does, and, and hopefully people get uh, a lot of good takeaways because I think you, you, know, you, you are highlighting a lot of the parallels. And if, like you said, if we put, give more uh, attention to history, we won't repeat the mistakes of the past if we know about it. And sometimes we go through uh, things unnecessarily just because no one taught us, oh, this happened before, and this is how we can get around it. Well, the politicians are, are wanting to go socialist. You know, Bernie Sanders and Warren, and we're going to be a socialist country, and we're going to spend trillions and trillions of dollars doing stuff. That's that won't work at all. Capitalism and entrepreneurship is what would, and we should expand that and concentrate on that. The company I work with, the founder believed in entrepreneurship and capitalism, and he set up independent people all over the world to grow the business. Now, instead of him having a monopoly on this on, in this particular industry, uh, what he did is he expanded. There's 160 people like myself throughout the world and they're all entrepreneurs creating new ideals, and uh, that's what works. Is your, you know, look at look at uh, McDonald's. Look how they have expanded. They've done that through through uh, franchises, uh, and they build these. And look at Starbucks. Starbucks done a fabulous job expanding. Uh, that guy from Starbucks, he came out of the projects up east somewhere, and he lifted himself up out of, out of the trouble and created this fabulous company. So I take my hat off to him. But mm-hmm. entrepreneurship, capitalism, let people, like, like when they settled Oklahoma, 
everyone got up, what, 160 acres, I think. And they went out there and settled the land and become the breadbasket of the world, except for the Dust Bowl. But uh, capitalism, farmers, independent guys is what created this country and will, will rule this country and make everyone prosperous. And there's nothing wrong with millionaires and billionaires. Absolutely. And, and on that note, I like to highlight uh, Carnegie because at the end of the Men Who Build America, you know, his colleagues that were competitors and fierce rivals during his formative years and his twilight years, they're like, well, the more money you have at the end, you know, what did you really do? And so he put out millions of dollars for all library, countless libraries around the country. And Rockefeller lived, what, 13 years past Carnegie's death. And, and donated even more so. And today we have Warren Buffett and, and Bill Gates that are, have these huge um, philanthropy projects. Uh, what's your take on this, uh, the current entrepreneurship and the barons of today and what they should do so we will know this history and leaving a legacy behind? Well, what Carnegie did with the libraries was incredible. Take, take a look at Cincinnati, Ohio. There's a lot of Carnegie libraries down there. And then if you go out in the countryside, in uh, Kentucky and Illinois and Indiana, Missouri, and all across the country, Carnegie went out there and built the libraries and put and stocked books in them. It cost him a lot of money. That's what he did with his money. So what Bill Gates is doing, what Warren Buffett is doing, because they're giving a lot of money away, that's their prerogative. You don't want to give it to the government. Let the individual give that money away. Uh, I, I give money away. Uh, as anyone should, and it's good. You got to support your churches. You got to support your uh, the welfare people. I'm not not the government side of it, but say the children's homes, independent children's homes. They do a great job of bringing these kids up and getting them out and getting them productive. So you've got to spend your money. As individuals, need to support people, support the community, like Bill Gates. Bill Gates has done a great job in supporting things. And, look, and he started in a computer business when he was, what, sixth grade and got hooked up with IBM and trying to help the banks in downtown Seattle figure out their problems with computers. He's, he was kind of a natural at it. And then he was walking by a room in, in uh, IBM up in Schenectady, New York, and he looked over and he saw this little PC computer sitting there and said, what's that? And he said, well, that's a small computer and has no future. We, we want to make mainframe computers. So what he did, he says, well, can I have that? He said, yes. They gave it to him. They gave him the patents and everything. He took that computer to Seattle, and that's what started, uh, started his company. It became mm-hmm. a very successful. Now you've got those kind of computers in every home and every office in the world. So that's, that's those ideals, those creative ideals is what works. We need to have schools and educational systems that promote creative ideals and get the kids up and going. And when I was a kid, I raised, I had a nice crop of tobacco with my grandfather, and that gave me $150 back in 1952. And for a, for a seventh grader, 150 bucks was a lot of money. Yeah, 52. <laughs> and then here in Dayton, Ohio, we had John Patterson, who founded NCR, National Cash Register Company. Mm-hmm. He, uh, they had slums in the southern part of Dayton. It's kind of a really rough neighborhood. He got a farmer to come in, set up 40 plots, 40 uh, garden plots. And then he would get the kids 
to go in with this farmer and the farmer would teach them how to raise crops. They could use that and sell the crops or take them food home to feed the family or they could sell the crops at the farmer's market, keep the money to buy books and school clothes to go to school and that created a lot of entrepreneur capitalists out of Dayton, Ohio. And he was one of the guys that created so many uh, uh, corporate America. Uh, Steve Watson used to work for for uh, John Patterson. John Patterson didn't like him, so he fired him one day. And so uh, he came to his office and told his maintenance guys, take this furniture out there in the middle of the field. So he goes out there, pours a gallon of gasoline on the furniture and fires it up, burns out down his, his office uh, stuff. And that's where the phraseology comes from, you've been fired. So Steve Watson gets on a plane, on a, a train, goes to Cincinnati, buys Cincinnati time clock, and that became IBM. Because Steve Watson wanted John Patterson to go into the office machinery business, not just the cash register business. And John Patterson said, no, we're in the cash register business only. And so he could have had IBM here in Dayton, Ohio, and then uh-huh. that ended up in Schenectady, New York. So right. all these good stories, all this good history, needs to be told. So, Absolutely, and I wholeheartedly agree. And I think the first stop or the first start is to pick up the Tobacco Trust and Trump, How America's Forgotten War Created a Big Government. Jim, if you can give us the website and social media where they can pick up the book and find out more information about you. Yes, uh, it's on Amazon. And the webpage is thetobaccowars.com. And I think you have a Facebook page as well. Uh, We do have a Facebook page. You just caught me off guard. I think thetobaccowars.com will get get you to the Facebook page. Awesome, awesome. I mean, it's been a a, a great hour, and I'm sure – I mean, you've been a a wealth of information, and I'm sure we just touched the tip of the iceberg, so we'd love to stay in touch with you. There's many, many stories out there. And there's many authors out there writing books about what goes on and what's happened. So we need to promote the authors. Yes, indeed. And on that note, you have just been in tune to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza. And I am David. Jim, it was a pleasure. Let's stay in touch, sir. Let's do that. Stay in touch. Thank you for your time. Thank you guys very much. You're welcome. Cheers. Uh